Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to two different passages this morning. We'll be equally in both of them. The first passage is Acts 28. Verses 24 through 31. The second passage will be 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 22. Here we come to the end of the, the book of Acts, 32 sermons later, and we'll be finishing the book of Acts. I'm excited. Uh, over the summer, we're going to be working through enjoying Jesus through habits of grace. Um, be looking at primarily three habits, the Word, prayer, and fellowship, all for the purpose of loving Christ more and enjoying His presence. So as we come here to the, book, the end of the book of Acts, I want to begin reading in verse 24 of chapter 28. Let's begin. And some were convinced by what He said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. He says this. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, this is a very big therefore. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years, Paul did, at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 6. Paul speaking, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to also, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians ha, uh, has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. For the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may our hearts be open to see your truth. May our minds be open to understand your truth. And Father, may our hands, by the time we're done, be ready to go live your truth. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking a lot about courage over the past few weeks. Today we're going to talk about courage to finish well, or a courageous finishing. But first I want to ask this question, what does it mean to finish well? Does it mean to, to be able to look back on life and have no regrets? I don't mean to burst your bubble, but it's already probably too late for that. 
or maybe to minimize my regrets? Or is it, uh, you know, I finished your bucket list, right? I mean, none of us have probably, maybe some of us have started writing a bucket list, but we have a, we have a uh, subconscious bucket list. Like, I want to get to this point. I have this goal. I want to make this happen. I want, we all have ideals. It might be to do nothing and just live in stresslessness and comfort, but that's still an ideal in and of itself. Maybe you have a, a bucket list to get to, or maybe it's to see your kids have successful lives, however you conveniently defined that. What is it that you're aiming for? Like, Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says, I am finishing well. I am finishing well. He says, I have kept the faith. He says, there is a crown of righteousness coming for me. I mean, think about what Paul is saying. Paul, this wretched persecutor of Christians who murdered them, who Jesus himself says, you're persecuting me, Saul. Now at the end says, there is a crown of righteousness coming for me. And as Paul walks in his final days, he spends them proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness, the text tells us. That is what it looks like to finish well. To have kept the faith. And a faith that works itself out in a loving proclamation of the gospel with boldness. I mean, think about your life right now, where you're at, am I finishing well? I mean, you don't know whether you, tomorrow's the last day, next hour's the last hour, or you've got decades left. You should be asking the question, am I finishing well? Am I keeping the faith? A faith that works itself out in loving, joyful proclamation of the gospel with boldness. Am I going to finish well? I mean, think about that kind of goal for life. How much more awesome, for lack of a better term, how much more awesome that is to have that kind of goal than the goals that I previously listed. Like, do you see how pathetic our aims probably are compared to that aim? But this takes courage to finish this way. Courage to keep the faith when your flesh says there's something better over here. Or courage to be exhorted when your faith is not well. When you're not looking to finish well. Or when you start to swerve a little bit. It takes courage to, to both tell someone, hey, your faith is headed in the wrong trajectory right now. And it takes courage, by God's grace, to hear that. How do we find courage to finish well? How do we find this vigor to finish well? I think if we look back with that question in mind, if we look back over Paul's life and journey, and particularly in these couple passages, I think we'll see that Paul had some particular beliefs or particular point of views or perceptions, if you will, that gave him courage. And I don't think this is a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly a foundational list. And without these perspectives, as we look here in the book of Acts and supported by much of what's happened in the book of Acts, we'll see that without these particular beliefs, without these convictions, without having these perceptions, you will not finish well if you finish at all. The first one is this. Life is an active fight. Life is an active fight. Look what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See, life is a battle. It's a fight. And Paul understood this. 
It's a race. As he talks about it in other places as well. Not a race in competition against others, but really what Paul is talking about is a race that's in competition with your own flesh. It's a fight that's an internal fight. Now you might say, I, yeah, I know, preacher, I know. Life is hard. Like, it's hard. Hang on to that thought for a second. First of all, it's a fight, but it's a fight to believe truth instead of lies. It's a fight to believe truth instead of lies. What, what he means by, I have kept the faith, is he means, I have kept believing the right things. I have kept trusting the right things. And you say, well, how, does, how, do you get, how, how do you get to that point at the end of your life? Well, it starts today. You start believing the wrong things today, and it simply compounds as time goes on. We've talked about this before. You're never in neutral. You're either moving forward or moving backwards in your walk with the Lord. Your faith in Him, this, this idea of keeping the faith, you're either walking forward or you're moving backwards. There is never a neutral stance. Whenever you hear the word or the gospel proclaimed, you either move forward in love and adoration of the king, or you move backwards in bitterness and hatred of the king. That's, that's the two options. Paul says, I, am, I have fought the, 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 the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have kept believing the right things. I mean, you see this in the garden, right? Do I believe God? Slash truth. We'll think of God. Truth is kind of the same thing. All truth comes from God. God is all truth. Or do I believe something else? Adam and Eve chose to believe something else. Paul shows us here that he kept believing the truth. Now, he didn't always believe the truth. He wasn't perfect at believing the truth. That's why he still needed a redeemer. But we see that at the end of his life, he says, I have kept the faith. I have kept believing the truth. Even in the midst of others opposing it. You get to the very end, it's interesting, at the very end of Acts, and, and you hear this, the gospel is still going forward, but what do you hear in the midst of this? There is still opposition to the truth. There are still those who don't want to believe the truth. The Jews, particularly in this passage of, of Acts 28, with this Isaiah quote, like he's saying they have kind of the same thing as we talked about before in, in Psalm 115, that they have ears but cannot hear and eyes but cannot see. And Isaiah's kind of saying the same thing here, that, that they are hearing it, but, but they're, not, they're seeing it, but they're not perceiving it. And they're hearing it, but they're not understanding it. And then you see in Timothy, those among Paul, where Paul talks about he's been deserted. He even, he even talks about Demas who is in love with the present world. What's he saying? He's believing lies. He's in love with the present world so much so that he's forsaken being in love with Christ. He's deserting the truth. Not just he's left Paul, but this leaving Paul is showing his desertion of the truth. Paul talks about being betrayed. This coppersmith, Alexander the coppersmith, his Betraying, when he says that he opposed our message, what's he mean? Alexander the coppersmith opposed the truth. And his opposition to the truth there hurt Paul. Insofar as Paul represented the truth. And then we see Paul preaching the truth. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God with boldness, and the text says, without hindrance. But it's a fight to believe the truth. And, and as we think about this truth, and think about culturally applying this for us, we love ambiguity. We love lack of clarity. I see this all the time. I see it in my own heart. We enjoy a lack of clarity often. That way we don't have to actually do something. We, we, we want to, oh, you know, that's kind of true for you and true for me. Or, or just, you know, just, just tell me a, a truth, but don't like, tell me what I have to actually do with it. But that's why Paul either people either loved or hated Paul. Because he spoke the truth with clarity and in a commanding sense in which required a response. You know, it's interesting. Just an observation as a pastor. I found it to be very true that when you speak 
the truth clearly into someone's life, you will find out very quickly if they view life as an active battle. Do they view life as an active battle in the sense, I'm going to define that more clearly here in just a moment. Or, do they just view life as a, I'm just trying to get on to the next thing that I want. Do they view life as a struggle against unbelief? Or are they happy to live in their falsehood? When you speak the truth into their lives, you'll find out quickly if they're fighting this battle that we're talking about. So this fighting, this active fight, first of all, it's a fight to believe the truth instead of lies. lies. But this fight, this race, is like, I want to follow Paul's metaphor here and utilize his metaphor in another place as well, but it's like athletic training. I don't know how many of you have trained like an athlete. There was a day once in my life that looked similar to that. I feel like raising four boys and, well, I'll just leave it at that because Winnie doesn't count yet for at least as far as difficulty on me. Uh, It's more with my wife, but with four boys, I feel like it's athletic training every day, trying to keep up. This is Paul's point. When he's, when he's at this point in this passage, he's this fought the good fight, I finished the race. He's talking about the idea of athletic training. Now, now follow me here. What do athletes do? We, we see this, Paul, using this metaphor in other places, athletes beat the flesh. Like they, they, they work it into submission. But what is an athlete fighting against? What are they fighting against? What is, I, I love, like, you know, you listen to sports players, oh, we overcome the adversity, right? What, I mean, I get what they're saying, but I don't think they understand a, a deeper sense of adversity that Paul's talking about here. And that is, an athlete, when they're fighting, what are they fighting against? They're fighting against what the body naturally wants. The greatest adversity in an athletic training is not overcoming the media or overcoming a bad coach or overcoming this. It's overcoming what the body naturally is prone to move toward. You say, well, what is that? It wants rest. It wants to engorge itself. The body wants to to find comfort. It doesn't want to feel the pain of a muscle being stretched in a way that's uncomfortable and it hurts, even though it, it yields great benefits later. The body doesn't want that. The body wants entropy. It wants perpetual rest. But athletes in training say no to those natural impulses. I want to go eat more of this cake. right? So I'm leaving the wedding yesterday, and they're like, you should take this cake with you. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. They're like, you're not helping us by not taking it. All right, okay. Yep, I'll take the cake. Let's take the cake, and I'll find to give it away as quickly as possible. Because I don't need that. I don't need this cake, and my boys certainly don't. Not because they will get fat, but because they will drive me crazy if they have that much sugar. See, athletes in training say no to their natural impulses. They say no to the natural trajectory of the body. So here's the question. So Paul is saying, that's the metaphor Paul's pushing right now. So here's the question. What is the most fundamental movement of our flesh, of our evil, the evilness that's still left in our hearts? What is the most fundamental movement of the human heart? What is the most natural impulse of our heart apart from the grace of God? So think pre-salvation and still remnants of that for those of you who are saved. That, If you answer that question, we'll figure out what Paul is actually fighting against, what this fight is about. And if we can figure out what this fight is about, then we can figure out how do we finish well. Here it is. I will give it to you quickly for sake of time. Here's the most fundamental movement of our flesh, of the evil still left in our hearts. It is this. 
that the world exists for my glory. The world exists for my glory. I'll say it a different way. The world exists for my pleasure. Everything in my life should revolve around giving me the greatest pleasure. See that in my five-month-old? <laughs> See that in myself? See that in my, the rest of my children? My wife, she's got it figured out. She, she doesn't struggle with this. The world exists for my glory, for my pleasure. Matter of fact, even other people exist for my pleasure, for my glory, for my goodness. I think so highly of myself, my ego is so strong that everything and everyone should serve my pleasure. You say, oh, but, but, Matt, but Pastor Matt, I, I serve other people all the time. Okay. And how much do you pat yourself on the back afterwards? How much do you yearn for a thank you? How quickly do you get bent out of shape about something to do with your servitude? Another, oh, oh but I, I'm depressed and I have a low self-esteem. Let me say this, try to say this tenderly, but truthfully. Who told you that you should think that high of yourself anyways? Listen, our, our natural bend, our trajectory of our hearts is to believe and then try to orchestrate the world around us to exist for our glory. Here's how Martin Luther put it. I'm quoting Luther, who I heard Keller quote. He said this. Do, listen, listen to this. This is so potent. Due to our original sin, meaning, meaning this sin, this original, like when he's thinking, he's thinking like depravity, our our sin nature. This is that is just rooted deeply in us. He says, due to our original sin, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize that in this wicked, twisted, and crooked way, our nature seeks all things, including God, for itself. Let me say that again. Due to our original sin, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize that in this wicked, twisted, and crooked way, it seeks all things, including God, for itself. What's Luther saying? That our ego, our pride is so twisted that it wants to manipulate, mold, move, direct all things for itself, even God. Our egos are so strong that we want everything else in this world to serve our glory. So much so, you see examples of this all throughout the scriptures, so much so that we live often saying this phrase, would you give up your life for mine? I want you to give up your life for mine. I want you to suffer for me. I want you to lay down your life for me. I want you to die for me. I want you to give up what you want so that I can get what I want. I want you to suffer along with me. I want you to feel my pain. Now, listen, the most pious of us, let me, let me just get at you for a second, us for a second. The most pious of us will give up what we want and let someone have it, but then we'll harbor ill feelings towards that person. Like, so what we did was we let them have what they wanted so that we could bend the situation to make ourselves feel superior by being the one to actually give up our preferences on the surface for that person. 
all the while, subconsciously, like we're saying, your life for mine. I'm going to give up this little bit here on the surface for you, so that then I can feel the sense of superiority, the sense of I can feed my ego that I did this. I accomplished this. I worked this for you. Your life for mine. And so here's the reality. Here's the reality. Here's where I'm, I'm driving to at this point where Paul says, I fought the faith. I have, I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. I fought this fight. What's he, what's, this, what's he talking about? He's talking about this. He's talking about an active battle against his ego. Against everything I just described. That's what Paul is saying. I have fought the fight against that. And here's the reality. If you are not struggling with this battle every day, your ego will win and you will not finish well if you finish at all. Listen, your ego will fight without any provocation. You understand that? Like it is always scheming towards that end. Always. And if you're not struggling and fighting that battle every day, it will win. Let me, let me tell you this. If you're not fighting against your ego each and every day, then you should be scared. You should be scared right now. Because here's what that means. That means you are probably not a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not warring against this innate desire to orchestrate everything for your pleasure, if you're not fighting against that, then the Spirit is not at work in you. But here on the flip side of this, if every day seems like this huge onslaught of selfishness that you see in your heart, this ego that you see in your heart, and you see each and every day that you're fighting against that, and even days you feel like, I just can't win, and it's terrible, and I hate it, and this misery, and the misery I'm causing other people, but I'm fighting against it, and by God's grace, I hope someday it overcome it, but I'm fighting against it, and I'm actively warring against this that's inside of me, then listen, you should be very encouraged, because the Spirit is raging a battle inside of you. This is the fight you must fight if you're going to finish well. And it's not a battle that happens every once in a while. Listen, I see this in my own heart. I see like I walk away from conversations. I, I see this all the time. And, I, and what are my thoughts most often? They're not, I, I hate to even confess this. It, they're not, it's not, oh, I hope that person hears the truth and does well and you know, feels cared for. So many times I, I walk away going, well, I wonder how I was perceived. wonder how I moved the conversation forward. What is that? It's just, it's, it's, my, it's my ego. It, it's my ego curved in on itself. But you see what happens. What, where does that lead to? What does that lead to? It leads to slavery and destruction. Because what happens is the true self, who I am in Jesus, is being squashed, hidden, suppressed under that ego. This is the fight you must fight if you're going to finish well. At the very beginning, I, I said this phrase. You say, oh, you know, I, listen, I know life is hard. Life is hard, Pastor. I know life is hard. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. That's what you mean. We've got to fight this battle. Life is hard. Listen, I think Satan has us so distracted with all these battles that make us feel like life is hard and not to delegitimize those, but they're certainly out there and all these other physical battles and things that we've got to fight. But I think in many ways, he just has us distracted from the heart of the battle with all these other things that make us say that, well, life is hard. Yeah, yeah, those things are hard, but are you fighting this battle? 
Because if you're not fighting this battle, then you're distracted fighting other battles. And you will not finish well. You will not finish well unless you fight actively this battle all the time. Next, next point of view of Paul's. Sensitivity to the truth. Sensitivity to the truth is vital. At the end of the book of Acts, here we have the gospel, the kingdom of God being proclaimed once again. Luke's ending, you know, people write in general, but particularly in scriptures, Luke's ending in this way points us to saying what is of primary importance, and that is the gospel being proclaimed, more on this in a bit. But once again, Luke shows us how some responded to the truth and how some did not respond well to the truth. Let's go back to Sorry, my notes like wigged out on me there for a second. He says that some were sensitive, we see here, but some were not. Some were, some were understanding of the truth and some were not. Paul understood that sensitivity to the truth was vital. That's kind of the picture being painted here by even the prophet Isaiah. Notice here that he says in, in Acts 28 that, that some were convinced, but some were not. It says that some departed when they heard Paul say this quote from Isaiah. And he says to these hard-hearted people, he says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will see, but not perceive. You have hearts that have grown dull. Now, I, w- I want you to understand something here. These people that Isaiah is talking about are not people out getting drunk, having abortions, and worshiping Zeus at the nearest temple. These are the supposed people of God that the prophet Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the people that would be sitting in a room like this today. They have come to a place of abundance in truth. They hear the truth all the time. The truth of who God is is all around them, and they're being hit with the truth all over the place. But instead of hearing it humbly, eating and growing and flourishing on the truth, they have turned their eyes and ears towards something else. And slowly by slowly, they have given in to the indulgences of the flesh and the heart, and now their hearts are so cold, their eyes are so blinded that they can't hear or see the truth. So what does Paul say? The Gentiles have ears to hear. The gospel will go there. We just we, we have to ask this question at this moment. Could it be that your heart has grown dull? And listen, listen, if you say, nope, mine's not. <laughs> it probably is. If you go, you know I hope not. Let me go see. You should be encouraged. Do you have ears to hear? How do I know? You ask somebody? Do you, do you, do you, someone who would be actually willing to tell you the truth? Even if it hurts you like the wounds of a friend kind of idea? Each Sunday as you hear the gospel preached, do you fall more in love with Christ? Or is it just another Sunday? Check. Just another sermon? Is it just another Bible reading? I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying every moment is this huge emotional charge and rush. I'm trying to paint that picture. I'm just saying, is your heart sensitive to the truth? Is it pricked by the truth? Not not as your mind feel good and stimulated. Are your affections moved by the truth? If your heart grows dull, 
where you are not sensitive to the truth, you will certainly not finish well. But if your heart stays sensitive to the truth, where it can hear the truth and respond in humility to the truth, then you will finish well. This is a side note. Go read the book of James. But if you want to remain sensitive to the truth, ask God for humility. Third point of view from Paul. Sensitivity to the truth is vital. Next, God rescues sometimes from and sometimes through trials. This is the point that our flesh, well, one of the points our flesh is certainly not going to like. 2 Timothy 4, 17-18. Let's read these words. <clears throat> but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Let me ask you a question. Is Paul saying that no matter what evil confronts me, what evil comes upon me, God will deliver me from it? Is that what Paul's saying? Right, he says, right, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. So another stone thrown at me, I'll make it. Another trial comes to me, I'll be found not guilty. I mean, he even says here he was rescued from the lion's mouth, meaning death by the court. He was rescued. Does Paul mean whatever evil confronts me, God will rescue me from it? Obviously not. That cannot be what Paul's talking about. If you read the context, Paul knows right now that he's about to be executed. His life is coming to an end. He says, my life is about to be poured out, right? That he's, his departure is coming. That the end of his life is coming. He just said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And my departure has come. Listen, here's what Paul is saying. God will always rescue me. Sometimes from suffering, and sometimes He'll rescue me through suffering. Keller said this, you understand that the only disease that can really destroy you is the disease of sin. What's he mean by that? Well, in this context, the only suffering that can destroy you ultimately is the suffering of your own sin. Nothing else can destroy you ultimately. No other suffering can destroy you ultimately. What can destroy you is the sinfulness of your own heart and the suffering that comes as a consequence of such. Here's what Paul is saying. Sometimes God rescues me from death, and this time, He's going to rescue me through death. Wow. Wait, wait, think about that. What's He say right after? He says, from every evil deed and bring me where? Safely into his heavenly kingdom. What's he saying? He's saying sometimes God rescues me from death. This time he's going to rescue me through death unto what? What's he rescuing me unto? His heavenly kingdom. I mean, th- wow. He, listen, he's using suffering to deliver Paul unto something else. So here's a question. What is suffering in our lives often used to deliver us from? What do you think? Our egos. I know your ego doesn't like to hear that. Because I know some of you are like trying to justify it right now in your heads. I'm trying to just because I don't like it. It's from the, 
oftentimes suffering is meant to deliver us from this wicked task of thinking and feeling and trying to manipulate all of life to serve our purpose. The purpose of glorifying us. Listen, God is going to rescue His children from and sometimes through suffering. And what ultimately matters is this. No matter the rescue. Where does Paul say he is rescuing us unto? Again, being safe in heaven in the presence of God. Listen, our ego has no place in the presence of God. Our ego cannot live in the presence of God. And so when God uses suffering to relieve us of that great distress, He prepares us to be His bride in His presence. The bride of His Son in the presence of a holy God. What matters, again, is being safe in the presence of God. The perspective that you must have, if you're going to finish well, is that God rescues sometimes from and sometimes through trials. The next one is this. You must anticipate the future appearing of Christ. You must live with a, with a healthy anticipation. Closely related to like an anxiousness, but not an anxiousness in a sinful worriness sense, but in a, in a longing for And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but, to, but also to all who have loved His appearing. <clears throat> Paul is saying here, the righteous judge will award those with this crown of righteousness, those who have treasured the future appearing of Jesus. You say, well, I, I, that sounds a little like those who have like, loved His appearing in the past. And what do you mean like future appearing? I, I think if you, just briefly here on an interpretation point, if you read all of chapter 4, the, the motion of chapter 4 is looking eschatologically, meaning it's looking to the future, looking to the future of what's to come. So I think the same thing is happening here if we're talking about the context that Paul is talking about those who have loved his appearing, meaning those who have lived life anticipating this future appearing of Jesus. You could say it the other way and it would probably have similar uh, potency, if you will, for perspective and how to uh, finish well. But I think this helps us look to the future in a in a way that is helpful for this task, and I, and I think it's faithful to interpreting this passage, but he says these are people whose lives have been marked by a determined and expectant look forward to the coming of Christ and the final victory over sin. This is people who live each day treasuring that moment to come. But, but here's the deal. It's more than just a belief. Like, it's more than just a mental, you know, yes, I, that'll be great that day when Jesus comes. Yes, that's good. Looking forward to that. Now, what's going on today and what's the business for today? The phrase that Paul's using here reflects a people who take the final judgment very seriously. You understand that the future appearing of Jesus includes, yes, He's coming to get His bride, but He's coming to judge. He's coming to say, this is not my bride. This is my bride. This, you did not know me. I do not know you. Depart from me. And this, I died to wash you in my blood and present you. Welcome into my eternal kingdom. And so this future coming is, includes this judgment. So these people who are loving His appearing, loving this future coming, are those who take and understand the final judgment seriously. 
Like, think of the athletic metaphor in this passage. This race, this finishing well, this crown of righteousness that is to come. This future appearing where this righteous judge. Paul, here's the the deal. Paul drew courage and motivation from the reality of a final and substantial assessment of his life. Now, now I hear that and I go, that's crazy. Like, that, does, that does not encourage me. <laughs> Think of a very full, substantial, complete assessment of my life. Paul even considered the idea of failure, if you read 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be what? Disqualified. Listen, this idea of loved has this connotation of longing for. Longing for this future event. Even ready for this future event, this future judging. Let me quote someone here. The nat- naturally, that readiness is the product of a life lived in the Spirit in which the rule of Christ is being experienced. So who, who are these who long for this appearing? It's those who have a sense of readiness. How would you long for something to any measure if you didn't think that you were ready for it? Right? How, how would you long for that? It would be nothing but fearfulness, right? It'd be nothing but, no, 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 keep me away from that. No, 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 I don't want to die and face that. Or, no, can we just wait for that? Let me do my business over here. And he says, those who live longing for this anticipation, for this event. So this involves not just the gracious work of God, but the intense effort at the human level. So these people are longing for His appearing, are only longing because they have a sense of readiness. And the sense of readiness only comes as a product of a life lived in the Spirit. You want to finish well. We have work to do. And listen, we, and we can say that in our context, understand that we don't earn our salvation, but because of our salvation, we will live in a way that is a product of a life lived in the Spirit. Now, I, I should give this comment here too. You cannot control your loves, but you can, can feed the right ones. Right? Loving His appearing. You, you can't say, well, no, I, I'm going to love His appearing. But you can feed that love. Repenting of the wrong loves and disordered loves and asking God to give you a love for His appearing, His future appearing. You can feed the right loves with the glory of God, seeing it in the Scripture, seeing it in the church, seeing it in creation, and so grow and foster and help to flourish this love of His appearing. Next. Humans can be stopped. The Gospel cannot. This point of view, again, how are we going to finish well? Humans can be stopped. The gospel cannot. Look at the end of Acts 28, verse 31, or 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. I don't know about you, but when you get to the end of Acts, I say this question. So what happens to Paul? My goodness, we've just been reading chapters and chapters about the life of Paul and you go what happened to Paul he spends two years at his own expense and then there's this gospel thing and he presented it with boldness the end there is no Acts 29 here's Luke's point here's Luke's point it doesn't matter what happened to Paul as awesome and as crucial, as important 
as his life was. It doesn't matter what happened to Paul. Compared to what happened with the gospel. The gospel is being preached with boldness and without hindrance. And that's what matters. I, mean, I could like preach a whole sermon on that, or maybe a series on that, right? When it comes to our servitude, it doesn't matter what happens to you. What happens, what matters is the gospel being preached. Yeah, that was that was free. Luke's way of saying, this is Luke's way of saying, you can do what you want to the messengers, but the message shall not be stopped. You can do what you want to the humans, but the gospel is alive and active and on the move. It cannot end. We know now for 2,000 years it will not be stopped. We're here today seeing the reality of Luke's point at the end of the book of Acts. So there's a question. Do you believe that? Like, do, you, do you believe, first of all, that compared to the gospel moving, this, me, even, it just doesn't matter. The gospel does. And if my life is about the gospel moving forward, then that will never fail. Like, it will never fail. It will never lack of resources. It will never have a lack of resources. It will never be opposed in such a way that it will be thwarted. It will be stopped. It will be quenched. It, 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 it won't stop. And so, listen, if I give myself to that, then it's just unstoppable. In my life, whether I'm here or whether I'm in the presence as a result of the gospel, it doesn't matter. When we're talking about courage to finish well. Here's reality. If it's more about the gospel being stopped than it is about you being stopped, then you will courageously finish well. You'll finish your day well with your kids. You'll finish your day well at your workplace. You'll finish your week well with your family. You'll finish well with your classmates and your roommates. You will finish well with your brothers and your sisters. You'll finish well when no one else is looking. If it's more about the gospel and the fact that it cannot be stopped. Listen, if it's more about you being stopped, then you will twist things, manipulate people, self-justify yourself in order to keep from being stopped. Your ego will drive you into the ground. Your ego will drive relationships into the ground. Your ego will destroy the lives of other peoples, even your brothers and your sisters. But if it's about the gospel, it cannot be stopped. And you don't have to do anything evil to keep it going. You live in righteousness, faithfulness, and the gospel keeps going. Realize the gospel can't be stopped. And again, if you give your life solely to that task, proclaiming the gospel to your children, to yourselves, to your coworkers, seeing it take over your life, every nook and cranny, you can live with courage. You can live to finish well. If you believe, part of keeping the faith, right? Keeping the faith, part of that is believing the gospel cannot be stopped. I'm not powerful enough to stop it. The last point of view here is in the end, you really only need this one thing. In the end, you really only need this one thing. <clears throat> 16 and 17 <clears throat> says this, At my first defense, <clears throat> no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So here's our question. What was the one thing that helped Paul be courageous? What was the one thing 
in the end that helped Paul finish well? It was the friendship of the Lord. It was the friendship of the Lord. Now that lack of friendship of the Lord is is just a symbol of the great cosmic struggle of mankind. Because man was meant, women, woman was went, meant to live in perfect unity and friendship, unhindered friendship with its creator. And that was broken. Every person in the end, the only thing that ultimately matters is will you be found a friend of God or will you be found an enemy of God? Those are the two options. To be found an enemy of God is to then be given to your own destruction to experience the fruits of that the rest of your life just as you have done on this side of eternity. To be found in the end a friend of God is to be welcomed into the fruits of His person and His character and His eternal nature. And Paul shows us at the end of his life that the one thing that matters is that the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord does this for his friends. But here's Paul. Paul's not talking, well, metaphorically, I know Jesus is next to me. I know that the Lord walks with me by still waters and green pastures and layeth me down to rest and whatever verse you memorized when you were a kid. No, he says, I really, truly felt him next to me. Which is Psalm 23 as well. He really, truly experienced the Lord stood by me. This isn't him giving a metaphor. He's saying, I really, genuinely, truly, fully experienced He's my friend. And in the end, that's all that matters. Do you really, truly ever feel that the Lord is standing by you? Can you point to more than one occasion? You say, how do, I, how do I get to that? How do I get to that? This friendship, this experience, that how do I get to that? Let me read to you John 15, 12 through 15. Jesus speaking. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his Friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, I call you my friends because I lay my life down for you. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Do you see it? Instead of an ego that says, your life for mine, friendship is bought by saying, I will lay down my life for you. We say that again. Instead of an ego that says, your life for mine, friendship is bought by saying, I will lay down my life for you. Now, now let's step back for a second. What do we know Jesus is ultimately talking about here? What's he ultimately talking about? He is saying one day 
I will literally lay down my life on a cross. So that I can be your friend. Jesus is the ultimate friend. He doesn't say, come lay down your life for me. He says, I lay down my life for you. Listen, this here at Paul, at the end of Paul, you understand this, again, this has been happening throughout Acts. We've been seeing these pictures of Jesus in the life of Paul. Same thing's happening here in Timothy. This is Paul's Gethsemane. He's all alone. That's what the, everyone but Luke has departed from me. He's about to be executed. Everyone has deserted him. Except who? I mean, who does Paul point out is still in his presence? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus stood by me. But when Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, He was all alone the whole way. Even His Father turned His back on Him. And now as Paul is facing the end of his life, is Paul all alone? Huh. Jesus is with him. Jesus took the back turning of the turning his face away of the Father so that Paul would not be alone in the end. Here's the reality. Jesus is a friend of sinners such as you and I those whom He has washed in the blood of His own death. And without Him, you and I will not finish well. Indeed, we won't finish at all. But with Him, we will finish well. But let me close with this thought. You can't just offer up sentimental platitudes. Oh, yes, Jesus is my friend. You know, there's that song, I am a friend of God, right? If He is your friend, then you will walk with Him. You will walk with Him. How do I walk with Him? In the Scriptures, in prayer, in community. You will walk with Him in the gracious ways He's given us to walk with Him. He will, you will walk with Him in the habits of grace that He has given for His people to experience His presence, the Word, prayer, and fellowship. You will increasingly say, not your life for me, but I will lay down my life for you. And if Jesus is your friend, you will share Him with others. Let's pray. Father, as we get to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray that we would be reminded that your Son gave up His life for us to be friends. But as we know from the picture, it's not even just friends, but for us to be a, a bride, for us to be washed clean of our iniquities, for us, for our rescue to be secured, to be finished, to be finalized, and that one day we will be ushered into your heavenly presence where a feast of gladness and joy await. All because your son came to earth and instead of saying, you know what, you all give your life up for me, he says, I will give my life 
for them. He does the exact opposite of the way our egos are bent. And shows us that that is the way to truly live. So Father, I pray, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you to be friend, Father, they, they would recognize that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that they would place their trust not in their own doings, their own works of rightness, but that they would realize that those are all failures ultimately and that their only hope is that Jesus died for their sins and lived a perfect life for them. And Father, I pray that for all of us we would see that. That we would trust, that we would believe that, that we would walk knowing that. That in the end, that all that really matters is that we are found a friend of God. Father, may you speak this to our hearts. Help us to live faithfully in light of. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.